Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ram, the CTO at Impulse Mobile, and we discuss the innovations they are making in conversational AI, how security is embedded in your company culture, and how they scaled from 3 million to 300 million conversations a year. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, hello. Hey, Joel. I'm loving that background. It's really crisp. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, kudos to our marketing team for putting it together. I'm I'm really pumped up to have you on the podcast today. I I big geek when it comes to like conversational UI. Uh, I don't know much, but I want to know more. But I want to start out with like talking a little bit about you know who you are and and like why do you even like technology. Oh wow! <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, are we are we diving in? Should we yeah, get started? Yeah, yeah. We're good. Okay, awesome. Yeah, no, thanks for that question. It's actually a great question, and um, you know, it's it's funny. I look at my role um, today, but also right from the beginning, um, I, I went into um, engineering because I wanted to be like my uh, two uncles that I grew up with, who are engineers, and they wanted to be like their uncle. And so it's kind of like this history of wanting to be like someone else. Um, and so math, things like that were something that I really enjoyed and, and, and really wanted to be good at. Whether I was good at it or not, I was going to be good at it. You know, it's one of those you know, kids, kids convince themselves and that, that goes a long way. Um, and so naturally sort of, I don't know, when I was 10, my parents decided to get me a, a VIC-20. You may not know what that is. It, it's a... It's a, it's a computer that has all of four kilobytes on it. And so I was given that and I started to code. And it's like, just, just sort of one of those things you just do because you are, you're surrounded by people that seem to think that you should do it and you convince yourself therefore that you should do it. So that's kind of technology was very much from an early stage, something that I enjoyed and everyone looked to me sort of to, to go in that. And um, I will say though, that my dad very much wanted me to be a, a a doctor. He was a doctor. Uh, he was hoping that I would. And I'm like, I don't want to get up in the middle of the night and, and have to, you know, wake up for a pager or something like that or skip dinner. Well, little did I know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Servers <laughs> crashing. Yeah. Servers crash. And, yeah. and you know, you get, you get, you get problems at any time of the day. So um, I very, uh, very much sort of said, Hey, technology is something that I really like. And, and that's what it was. So it, that's I know that's a very long and, and kind of a more historical answer than you'd like, but uh, the, the flip side of that is because I think of how I've seen technology being used, it really became one of what is the value of, of what we're doing and what we're building uh, rather than necessarily the building of it. And for me, over the course of these the years that I've spent being in these kinds of roles, um, why am I doing this is, is the kind of the guiding principle uh, more than how am I doing it or what am I doing it? And I think the why is really related to the who you're doing it with, you know, the team, who you're doing it for, the, the people that get the benefit of hopefully your, your good work. Um, so those things sort of have increasingly become the, the driving force of why I enjoy technology. Uh, who I'm doing it with and who I'm doing it for, uh, I think is, is really kind of what, what I get, you know, excited about. Um, so. So tell me about 
who you're working with today and, and what you're working on and, and why? Yeah. Um, so, so we uh, are, you know, I joined this company sort of at the very early stages um, with the goal of trying to make the consumer healthcare consumer experience a little bit better. Um, we were looking to take some of that uncertainty around whether I have an appointment. I mean, even basic administrative type things of, you know, do I have an appointment? When do I have my appointment? I think I have the card that, you know, your doctor gave you or, or something like that and, and remind people when they need it and have that contextual sort of awareness. Um, and so this started out um, with a, with a, with a vision of saying, Hey, how can we make the healthcare experience healthcare engagement a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient, a little bit more human oriented mobile messaging as more and more people started doing, not just uh, using their phone to talk, but rather using their phone to do everything but talk. I believe the the 11th most important reason why you have a phone is to talk on it nowadays. That's, you know, if you have, based on a recent poll, interesting fact, the 10 most have nothing to do with talking. And, and so if we think about how the mobile and, you know, devices have sort of taken hold, we were sort of early on in recognizing that saying, hey, things like text messaging or sending uh, notifications to your phone while you're moving about, while you're going from place to place, that's the, the most convenient and, and, seamless way of, of integrating with, with your life. Um, in, in the ultimate goal of trying to take care of your health, get you to a little bit closer um, to do that. We're not gonna cure cancer. We're not gonna do all these amazing things, but what we can do is get you a little more connected and more aware of how you can take care of your health, get to that appointment, get your lab test done, try and exercise a little bit longer, um, you know, eat a little bit healthier. Those are the things that we focused on and we found the mobile communication sort of very much a, a neat sort of um, way to, to sort of dovetail into what you're already doing. So our technology is really focused on getting those messages out. And increasingly, you, you mentioned conversational AI. Um, we've understood more and more that you know when you want to do things at scale, um, you got to use the best technology that's out there. So we didn't go into AI as, hey, that's the thing. We came into it thinking, how do we do this? well and really at scale where we're talking not about hundreds of people but millions of people and we've been fortunate enough to touch that many people and it continues to grow so you know when we're talking about those pagers now it's not pagers now it's text messages that i get you know at three in the morning um fortunately i don't have to wake up and i have a great team that sort of gets at it but it's it's that growth as well that we're as a team having to to manage that scale uh incorporating things like um how do we do very smart natural language understanding using the best and, and brightest in that again putting the value putting the purpose in front of uh the guiding principles you know before using the latest tech because it's the latest tech and i say that because i think there's some who you know I think are, are using smarter technology than we might be doing. But I think where we've, we've always measured ourselves is are we delivering that value to our clients and to our members? And, and, and well, I mean, there, there's a, someone who told me, one of our investors actually said, hey, if people are buying your stuff in healthcare, that is the greatest measure of whether you're making a difference or not. You could have the greatest product, but if people aren't willing to buy it and use it, it doesn't matter, you know, don't bother. And I've always had that in the back of mind, like, let's, let's make sure we, we will fail 
but we will learn from those failures and we will improve. And that's very much also the concept behind AI, you know, the, the machine learning or what are, all these methods are just that I start out kind of, you know, not knowing much and I grow over time. And I think we approach our jobs the same way. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been a combination of building that scale, incorporating technology that we think are really important and valuable here, and really understanding the domain in which we're working. And that's one of the other areas that uh, we as a company, thanks to all of our amazing clients, um, have been able to learn what are the things that are impacting. One of the things that we we understood about a couple of years ago, uh, maybe we had ideas about earlier, but more firmly a couple of years ago, is around the social determinants of health and how that impacts your engagement with healthcare. Um, it, it's interesting to see that, and you may have heard about this, but um, people talk about um, where you live makes a, almost a bigger difference than, than your genetic code, your zip code. Uh, it has a bigger impact on your health and your outcomes around health than, um, than anything else. And so we kind of heard those you know, big statements and we, were, we dug in, we built our own index, we looked at all the data that was available. And we see this difference, and it's really interesting to, um, you know, try and make that difference. We, we think about what's going on in the world around us. Earlier this year, uh, with with the issues around racial injustice, and we sort of also saw that in some of the engagement that we were having. And when we start putting that lens on it, it was it was very striking. And so that's where, you know, again, technology, data, our purpose it converges into saying, okay, we have the ability to kind of, again, I don't want to overstate, but can we make a better future? Can we, can we make a little more of a difference? And, and I think, you know, the proudest thing is yes. The answer is yes. How much we're keep, you know, we're going to keep trying, we're going to keep learning. And that's why I love technology because it always introduces new, new concepts and new things they have to, to work with. So. so, so where's the best place to live for your health? Oh, um, I, I'm, you know, a person of privilege. So I will say where I live is actually a pretty good place. Um, but there are many places like that. There are places that even within, I, we're in Los Angeles. And so parts of LA have a, what, what our index does actually was go down, not just at the zip code level, but the census tract level. So literally my neighborhood is what we can index and say, hey, your needs are this much versus some other neighborhood. And so I've, I've actually looked at it personally and I'm like, well, okay, I guess I'm, I'm living in a good spot. Um, not, not a problem, but you go over maybe a couple of miles over and, and you see that there's a very different um, index and also comparably just driving through and knowing about it personally. You can say, yeah, that, that does bear itself out. We are able to, you know, where, where we did, what we did also separate. Um, I was involved in a, uh, city of LA COVID-19 sort of hackathon challenge um, actually with, with my family and, and because we were all trying to pitch in and see what we could do. And we did an analysis of where COVID cases were and geographically mapped them. And again, that mapped directly to that social determinants of health that we're talking about. And the higher levels of COVID cases were correlated very much with higher you know, areas where there was a greater need, uh, where there was a greater impact of these kind of areas, uh, lower income, less education, less access to healthcare, um, primary care physicians, you know, things like that, that have a, an immediate impact on, on health outcomes. 
See, I was thinking when you were discussing that where my mind was going was like weather and climate. <laughs> when you were, so when you were talking about this map, I was like, where's the best place to live for my health? I want to go to that like yeah, region <laughs> or time zone or whatever, maybe a place that doesn't switch their time zones. I heard there's, there's a lot of arguments, people wanting to stop the time changes because of health reasons. Yes. <laughs> I know. I would, trust me, technology would be a lot easier as well if we, we didn't have all that, but yeah. No, this this index is really getting at um, what again. It's the social determinants, right? So the things we as a society have determined, um, whether by conscious decision or un unconscious decision, that have impacts on your health. So it is things like um, your the average income of, of your neighbors, right? Um, are you renting or are you buying um, the houses or the the apartments? have most of the people completed uh, high school, uh, finished high school. So those are the things that we're looking at. And that is what I'm referring to as the sort of the indicators or predictors of how your health will play out. So how do you get the health data then? Like, how, how can you, like, what do you use? Like, it's like, okay, I understand what you're discussing. You're just like this public information. How do you connect that back to their physical health? So the way that's done is in many cases claims data, right? So you you've got you've you've got the insurance companies who are in, in quite a few of them are, are our clients, and so they kind of say, hey, this is where the person lives, and here's how we're looking at the claims, and we can then you know map it against each other. So not only do we have our index that's based on publicly available data, so we looked at all of the census data that's a, that's out there, which is coming you know from from uh, the, the government. Uh, websites and we download them and we normalize the data and our, our data scientists look through it and try to come up with the zero to 100 score. So 100 means you're really in a very, very tough spot. We then look at the behavior of that person. Are they engaging? For instance, are they, when I text you to say, hey, come refill your medication, are they doing that? So that's direct engagement data that we ourselves are seeing, right? So that's what, something we can measure. And then there's the claim that, well, they did actually pick up their medication. That's the hard data, the hard outcome that we're also going after. So on both counts, we're seeing um, that in many cases that there is a difference, right? Where if you have higher, if you're indexed higher on the SDOH, then you tend not to engage as much. You tend not to refill as much. And we actually wrote a paper about this with Kaiser Permanente on this um, because you know we had a very successful program uh, and it was reaching a ton of people, one of the largest you know, programs out there for, for getting medication refills using text messaging. And again, tremendous success um, in, in doing that with Medicare members. But, but when we dug into the data a little bit more, we, we saw, hey, you know what? We could do better in certain areas, um, specifically around those that have the higher needs. And so we're now going and Kaiser's already sort of innovating in that area and, and looking to, to find additional ways of, of sort of engaging, reaching out that first message. So just as an example of how we did this, we kind of built a predictive model around could some of these factors play into whether you'll engage with our first message or not. And we found that once you engaged, once you send back a, a yes, I want to do this, then we level the playing field then everyone's equally you know, likely to go get their medication from the pharmacy. But it was that first touch, that a little bit of that hesitation, um, maybe a little bit of 
skepticism around or cynicism around, hey, what do they want from me? Is this spam? Is this not? And I think that is where we're working on now. Like, how can we sort of build up the first touch to being that successful touch? So there, you know, these are very subtle challenges, but as you can see, the tech can help us sort of separate these and, and, and get us a little bit closer to that better state where we're reaching everyone equally and everyone has the same chance at getting to take care of their health. And that's, um, that's where I think the data that we have um, can, can really you know, drive that um, a little bit more. How did you meet, like, what's the story of you meeting the executive team at Impulse Mobile and making the decision to join? <laughs> uh, it's an interesting story. That, so the, the, the guy that, that had this idea, um, and uh, he's, he's, he's been, he and I were talking for like two years, and he, he, the, the company that he was working on at the time was more around mobile marketing. Uh, slightly different and so lucky and I really am trying to get into healthcare and that's really where I, I see my passion and 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 what I'd like to, to focus on and he's like yeah that's the vision yeah we're, we're going to go be doing that and, and so I had talked to him and we talked a little bit about some of their technical challenges and my experience in that and try to come in and, and you know share some ideas so we, we had a little bit of a relationship our um and, and it turns out that he was able to get um one of our clients is still our client today as sort of the beginnings of the healthcare market that we were going after. So we worked with this company called Humana and which is more Midwest, large, very, very large healthcare um, pair. And um, the person that he was working with came on as well saying, Hey, this is a cool company. He was our client. And so Chris Nicholson, who's our CEO, was heading up a very large $250 million unit over in Humana and was working with, with a company that started um, thinking about doing this healthcare thing in a big way. You know, I got a, got a client here doing some use cases that were interesting, but not quite deep into healthcare. And so um, he was able to get a CFO, Brian Chudley, from WellPoint had a great experience, but also had Activision on his resume. So kudos to to Jared, um, who, who Jared Wrightson, who kind of had this idea and brought together um, Brian and, and and Chris, and and I was part of that as well. And so we we basically said, hey, this is a an amazing opportunity to take some of these ideas, make them real. Uh, we've got some traction. We've got some clients that are maybe on outdated technology. We can build some of the new ways of doing it, and it's sort of we, we basically bonded on the fact that we wanted to make a difference in healthcare. We want to do something interesting and exciting. We weren't, we were tired of sort of just accepting that this is just how healthcare is and we're not going to make any change. I mean, Chris, who had led a lot of innovation on his side, knew it was possible. Brian on that finance side had that strategy and finance background to say, hey, here's what, what people are looking for. So we didn't go in there naively thinking, we just have to get in front of the consumers. We'll disrupt everything. We didn't go out there with a bunch of buzzwords, but real, very tactically focused, operationally focused, like how can we move the needle in this? And I think that expertise that Brian and Chris brought to the table was just, I mean, to this day, they're, they're very much part of this, the team, invaluable to our success. Um, and then having you know, come with that depth of the financial strategy and the 
and the innovation side from 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 Chris, I think um, was great. And so my job was like, okay, let's build some cool tech, you know, let's make it happen. And um, and so yeah, it was. I didn't need much convincing. Let's put it that way. Um, I was on. So, so you guys refer to it as conversational UI, right? That that's the category yeah, that yeah. you'll play in conversational UI mm-hmm. and healthcare. So yeah. what's what's been like the progression of this conversational AI? Because like at first I was thinking, you know, like I think my first introduction to it would be like an intercom like type chat or like a drift, like something in the sales process. And then you get uh, like into the Alexas and start talking about the the interfaces with the conversations there. And now we're in, now we're in healthcare, and it looks like that. And correct me if I'm wrong. It looks like you guys build like a suite of tools, a suite of infrastructure, and then sort of customize the solution for your customers. Um, yeah. And then you may have some products people can buy off the shelf too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just I, I want to know, and we can talk. I've got more questions too about Impulse Mobile specifically, but right now I'm really curious and just for me better understanding conversational AI. Like, what's the progression of it? Where is it at today? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a really exciting question. I think we've been thinking about it. Um, so, so let me kind of go back to a little bit of your earlier question, like how did we sort of get into this? And, and I love the story because even though from a pure sort of, if I kind of put my CTO ego on, um, it doesn't sound as, wow, you know, you had this vision and, and everything sort of fell from there. Um, like going back to what I was saying about value first, you know, if there's a problem that I need to solve, solve that problem. Don't make problems. You got enough out there. So the problem that we saw is when we first started out, our initial goal um, as a platform was to send out messages. I need to remind you that you have a, an appointment tomorrow. And that seemed like a pretty reasonable thing to expect a system to do. And we were pretty good at it. And our goal was, you know, can we crank up the pace? Can we get more messages per minute, per second? Um, how fast can we go? But when you start doing that at scale, someone is going to respond back to you. They're going to say, oh, I can't make it. My, my, you know, I'm too busy at work. Or why are you sending this message? Or, or things like that that you just don't, you know, you just want to tell them that they have an appointment tomorrow. It's as simple as that, right? The problem, the use case is a one-way use case, a notification. Life doesn't work that way. Humans don't work that way. They, they, they would like to respond and text messaging the more and more we think about it, you know, when we started out, um, it's a two-way channel. You, you, you send a message to your friend, invariably she or he is going to respond to you, right? And you'd be a little upset, like, what? They didn't respond to my awesome, you know, a message that I just wrote. Why didn't I get a thumbs up? And so just observing human nature to want to respond even to a one-way message led us to invest in this, what are they saying? Why are they not making it to their appointment? They're, wait, we don't have to read their minds. They're telling us. It's in the text. It's, it's literally that they don't think it's important or they can't afford it or they think it's, you know, they, their car's broken. And you just look at it as, hey, what are people saying? And you try and understand them a little bit better. Before you can speak... Before you can respond to them, you have to listen to them. I have to learn, I have to understand. And so our ability to um, say, hey, it's important for you to take care of your health should only come when I understand that, when I think that you don't think it's important, right? If I sort of lord it on you and say, it's important, like, dude, I get it. I'm going to make the appointment. Just chill out. Like, 
you don't need to say. So that subtle sort of understanding comes from not just what you say, but also all the other things we know about you. Have you not made appointments before? So when we think about um, our natural language understanding, it's not just that I can understand the words that you're saying. It's also putting those words in the context of who you are that's saying them, right? As much as we can. Again, I don't want to overstate that. But if I know that you tend to have um, a propensity to cancel appointments, like you've just canceled and rescheduled, well, then maybe I should kind of nudge you a little bit more, right? Versus if it's just sheer forgetfulness and you make your appointments, fine. Um, if you think that eating um, rice, uh, white rice, isn't a problem, even though you know you're, you're diabetic, I need to educate you that white rice may have an impact on your diabetic control. Um, so it's, it's kind of, a, again, understanding where your, where your levels are from a pure medical perspective, but also the kinds of things that you're telling me that I can then incorporate into my quote unquote intelligence that I'm running behind the scenes to make that decision. So we built our platform sort of thinking about this in two levels. One, at the immediate, what is Joel saying to me? What's this, you know, what do I respond in that sense? So we built this, you know, dialogue management system that can have conversations sort of in real time. After our conversation is completed, what did I learn? What did Joel say? How did he respond? Was the sentiment good, negative? Try and look at that a little bit, sort of with a, at a higher level. Then we have this engine on top of that that does the tailoring. So the next time I talk to Joel, I might have a different conversation with him based on what he said in the previous, but also all the other conversations I've had with him. So again, we're trying to bring all of that smarts from the immediate conversation of what I need, simplify that problem, solve it easily, but also bring to bear the next time I have a conversation with that historical or that learnings that I have, our understanding that I've had built up. So our profile, for instance, our AI is very much built on that dynamic profile that I build about you on a regular basis. Every time I send out a message, I'm continuously updating that profile and keep track. So then it's, you know, that conversational AI is really around not just that individual messaging back and forth, but what conversations do I have so that we have increasingly more meaningful, compelling, engaging, relevant conversations, not just that are fun to have, but get you closer to your health and get you a little bit more you know, engaged with, with the healthcare. So that's how we interpret conversational AI. That's how we've developed it. Like I said, it was from my need of, of just saying, hey, people are talking back to us. Let's meet. Is there an opportunity here? And then being able to leverage that with, tech, uh, with the technology. Broadly, I think, you know, when you look at beyond what we're doing and what others are doing, I think, you know, a lot of it has been focused on task completion. Right? You, you, you build something, you want to reschedule your flight or you want to find out what your uh, credit card balances. Um, so those are great opportunities for building these kind of chatbots that, you know, are very transactional in nature. They, you ask them a question, you'll say, okay, did you mean this? Did you mean that? I think that evolution has also been very impressive to follow. And, and as we see 
you know, the investments that other companies have made, larger companies like Google's, Amazon's of the world, uh, Microsoft, we're able to leverage some of those learnings where you're incorporating some of those findings and some of the, the AI that we use. So by all, I mean, there's no way um, we, we would be able to solve some of these problems if it wasn't for the work that these, these great companies have done. Okay, so I'm following you on this and I wanna ask you some deeper questions, but how do you refer to like a specific style of conversation? Do you call it like a use case? Do you call it a domain? Like if we're talking about appointment reminders and you send them, send the notifications and people respond and they're interacting back and forth and then it comes to some sort of uh, conclusion, what do you call that? We like to call it a conversation. Okay, so it's, a, it's like a type of conversation. Okay, so my, my next question is, how do you structure your teams or how do you structure your technology organization uh, like to, to have expertise in the different styles of conversation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And actually we've invested quite heavily in that. Um, and that's what we call our behavioral data science team. They do the research of what makes for good conversations. Um, so it's, 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 I wanna kind of pause there for a second, behavioral data science. All right, a little bit of emphasis. There's there are a lot of teams out there that do behavioral science. As you know, there are a lot of teams that do data science. We felt that the right combination to answer your specific questions, like how do you have those conversations? What are the kinds of things that people say, and how would you pick them up? Right, our NLU, our NL, our natural language understanding isn't just you know very general. Like I was saying, that there's some domain specific problems that we're trying to solve that. You know, when we're talking about the sentiment analysis, we just couldn't solve it with what's out there. We had to build our own. And that's a, a very much, you know, that department that we've um, started about, about two, three years ago, it's been uh, now, uh, has been a huge part of our strategy and part of why we think we're successful. Uh, that investment of not just, you know, conceptually, uh, that, that there is such a thing. We, we, we feel very proud of having kind of, taken a charge in doing that, but also the people that we've been able to, to bring on board and the kinds of ideas and the learnings that we've been able to, to work uh, with our clients on and kind of co-develop, that's what makes those conversations more relevant, right? It's, it's that understanding that, that gets us there. So if, if, you know, if you want to get into the specifics, I'm more than happy to, but there's a there's a fair, you know, it's, 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 it could be a long, longer conversation, but I'm happy to, happy to dive in. Well, what, what were you doing before that? And how did you identify that this needs to be extracted into its own team? Um, we were doing it. We were just calling it that, you know, there, there's an aspect of what we were doing. Well, okay. So evolutionarily, right. So our biggest problem was we were in, we're, we're in a healthcare uh, environment which is highly regulated people are very sensitive to if i text a message send you a text message and you don't want to receive that text message i should immediately opt you up right and, and you indicate that to me similar to our you know do not call lists and things like that so fortunately for the text messaging channel itself sms it's well protected and, and it's been around for a little while so we started off just saying hey people are telling us instead of using the word stop which is the traditional and you know, from a from a, a requirements from uh, the act that's out there, uh, CTIA, which governs some of this, they say, hey, if you text stop, you must adhere to that. But people don't remember to text stop. They may say something like, why are you bothering me? 
I don't want to receive these messages. You don't hear, you don't see the word stop in there. You don't see anything that, you know, is compliant. And yet it would be a very poor user experience if I just said, told you, well, sorry, I don't understand that. Try again. Right. And we wanted to kind of get to that as quickly as possible. And so our first um, two things, actually, our first thing was let's make sure we are very proactive and accurate about any intent to unsubscribe because from a compliance standpoint we want to be always on the on the side of the user experience make sure that they're they feel protected so that was one the other was we also saw this i'd send you a reminder as i keep going back to the example we were doing more than that but let's it's a nice simple you know example i send you a reminder and it's just a notification you have an appointment 10 30 tomorrow with dr smith thank you i didn't expect you to say thank you and I'd say, sorry, I didn't understand that. This was us, you know, many years ago. We've, and, and Chris Nicholson and I, our CEO, had this kind of debate. I'm like, why are we saying sorry when someone's saying thank you? Like, can't you just, you know, fix that? And I said, well, okay, you're, you're I could. I, I mean, yes, we could hard code the, the response to a thank you. That's easy enough. But I think we should solve the problem broadly. And he and I chatted about that, about, do we do we want to start understanding beyond thank you, thanks, thumbs up, that was great, thanks for reminding me, all of these things. And then as we started doing that, we started understanding not just what people were saying, but again, the intent, why they were saying it, the behavior behind it. And so then the concept of behavior science came in and like, you know, are people saying things that mean that they will do it? Are people saying things that mean that they aren't ready yet, they need more education. So then if you think about behavior change models and some of that theory that comes from that, we're able to, to read from that literature and that research and say, hey, wait a second, this is what's going on here. I have people who are not ready to change. I have people that think that flu shots are, you know, might cause them to get the flu. So they're health beliefs things. So we started looking, when I say we, the team, I, I don't, I didn't personally, but you know, the team started looking at that. and. We were able to draw very quickly from this body of literature on behavioral science, which exists and has been around for a while. But in addition, we said, well, we're cranking through millions and millions of messages. So can we pair that back with what we're seeing from a data science perspective? And so we were starting to do that naturally, things like sentiment analysis. That's a very data-driven classifier that we have. So that at some point we said, let's call it behavioral data science because that's what we're doing. Um, that sort of formal statement probably came out about three years or so ago, if, I, if memory serves. Um, but it was, you know, it, it happened organically. It happened, I think, with very much like, what are people telling us? That learning, that listening, that that sense of we need to we need to pay attention before we make you know grand statements. And then we were we, one of the things that. I think is, is is very helpful for us as a company. We, we, we're always looking to learn from others, our clients, other research. So we quickly went to the literature and looked at what's out there and tried to, to learn from that. And in some cases, we'd come up empty. And in other cases, like, wait, there's actually some, some good stuff here that we can uh, learn from. So uh, that's, that's kind of how our, our thoughts sort of formalize and crystallize into this behavioral data science approach. 
So do you guys do things like if I want to book an appointment, I can book an appointment or it's like a, like a conversational interface on the healthcare provider's website. Do you do that yet? Or discuss or share with me like the range of products and solutions. Yeah. So you, you mentioned something about off the shelf and all that. Um, I mean, we are working with very, very large healthcare clients and enterprises, you know, I mentioned Kaiser Humana, um, there are other large companies um, that we work with. And so oftentimes they have very complex problems. We're working in tandem with other engagement solutions they have. So while there's a good chunk of work that we can um, kind of based on our overall platform capabilities, we can bring to bear. And what we've what we've done is these solutions that we have, whether they're getting you to refill your medication, whether it's you know taking care of your diabetes, because you got a recent lab test that says, hey, you're actually controlling it, keeping you controlled, um, which is a very different type of problem that we're going after. Or it's like you were saying, scheduling appointments or rescheduling appointments, um, getting you to, um, um, you know, we, we, we did, uh, we're, we're doing one where uh, we, we know that the opioid crisis has, has been very devastating. Um, had a devastating impact even you know, for a while now. And one, one of our clients is working on uh, sending out these pouches to people who, are, who have been prescribed opioids. But once they're done with, the, with that treatment, they can put the medications into this pouch that basically dissolves them and, and makes them uh, effectively not potent anymore. And, and the reason to do that is to sort of reduce your but the potential of these opiates sitting in the house that someone may, may abuse, right? So we can, again, try and yeah, give tools. In this case, it's a pouch that we have nothing really to do. Uh, and we were brought in saying, hey, can you remind people to use the pouch? And we'll be, give them incentive. So that's another, yet another problem that we're going after. When COVID-19 hit, uh, we immediately kicked into gear and started putting together ways that things that you could do. And we actually um, worked with an illustrator to come up with a photo, what's called a photo novella, or it's like a graphic, you know, mini graphic novel of things that you can do to prevent the spread, right? And so we went to our clients and saying, hey, look, let's get this out there. So you have a little message that comes to you and says, hey, we, we built a little story about, you know, keeping yourself, keeping safe. They link over and they look at this you know, graphic novel, um, which is just three or four scenes about washing your hands, keeping the distance, you know, trying to, to stay away from crowded places. And it, and so that's yet another thing that we do. So underlying all of these are these capabilities that we can assemble very quickly towards a specific problem because we have our um, these, these messaging engines, the dialogue management engines, the conversational tailoring engines that I was talking about. These are sort of layered in. Uh, in very much a platform model, a SaaS platform where you can, you know, configure them to your needs. So when we talk about building custom, it's really configuring for your specific use case and in in certain very common things like med medication adherence or uh, chronic disease management or getting them to to, to screenings that they need what, what what's called gaps in care within the healthcare industry. We've built sort of like almost ready-made solutions and you can say, hey, I want to use that immediately. I'm like, here you go. Here's what the content looks like. Here's all the the the, the, uh, 
all the smarts that go into the natural language understanding, the domain specific things, the tailoring, and you can customize it a little bit. You know, you go in there and spend some time with our account teams and boom, it's launched. So there are those verses. And like I was saying, we didn't expect, you know, a COVID-19 to hit us. Um, and this was back in March where we were thinking, okay, it's, it's going to hopefully get over soon. You know, we, we, we can, we can try and, you know, if we do everything the right way and here we are in November, still struggling, uh, and, and seems worse now. So, you know, some solutions we think are maybe just at a, at a point in time. Um, others, we know that that's just part of healthcare. Everyone, you know, will come you know, flu season, for instance, um, we changed our flu solution this year, uh, partly because of the COVID-19 If we think, you know, you may have heard the twin demic problem where you've got the COVID-19 crisis on, on top of a flu uh, and maybe a virulent flu, um, virus as well. So getting that flu shot in is at least, you know, until we wait for the COVID-19 vaccine to come in, we can at least try and, and nip one of those things in the bud as much as possible. So we're we're working with our clients to get the word out saying, hey, get the flu shot done. That's that's a start. Um, and, and so our platform allows us to engage with our clients to do all of these types of things. Um, it could be, like you said, very simply, hey, I want to reschedule my appointment with so-and-so. We can we do that too. It's it's also um, we don't integrate with smaller, like your dermatologist on the street. We're we're integrated with large enterprises um, that have, you know, um, systems like Epic, which is a very um, the the um, the biggest EHR uh, electronic health record uh, system out there. And um, so we can, you know, get data from there and, and push data back directly into their scheduling systems and, and things like that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it does run the gamut, but our, you know, I, I look at my team's job is to make these capabilities as easy to use and um, just not just from a configuration standpoint, um, but also from a reporting analytics standpoint saying, hey, did it work? Did it not work? You know, so, so that's very much part of the, what we focus on and make sure we get that back to the clients. So going from like 3 million conversations to 300 million conversations a year, like what did you learn from that as far as like leadership perspective and organizing the people and the technology? What's your big takeaway from the current scale? Wow. It's a, it's a great question. And um, I, I think, um, I think, you know, architecture matters, making sure that you do not solve, you don't build an architecture around solving today's problems. You build an architecture around solving future problems. And I, I think the quote that I really resonate with when you think about the term in architecture in our context as a CTO, it's the decisions that you make that are very difficult to undo later on. Right. So today I make a decision that seems really good and right, but always understand that if I have to undo it later on, then, then you're making an architectural decision. And so one of the things that we've also thought about, we, we said, look, we may be a small company today. We may only have 3 million interactions or 3 million members. But we think we're going to be successful, right? I mean, th th this is why we're here. We're, we're not here to, to work with 100 people. We're, we're here to work with as many people as we can get 
to because we believe in what we're doing and it was a little bit of kind of um a sense of like we have a responsibility to grow this right that, that that's kind of also where we're coming from that purpose and everyone on the team uh, that we've hired is very passionate about healthcare. That, that was the other part that I think is important. That you think of engineers as just wanting to write more code. Well, a lot of them want to write code that makes a difference. And I frequently get some engineers coming up to me saying, "Hey, Ram, I, I'm not seeing how my code made a difference. Like, explain that to me a little bit more." And well, it's you know, you, if you don't tie it back, and I think you will lose some of that momentum and steam that some of um, the team needs. But going back to the question. We've tried to work our architecture in such a way that I can scale without investing everything today because we didn't have the money today to fire up an unlimited supply of servers, even though we could. And that's an investment of cost, right? But most importantly, it's an investment in a certain architecture that allows you to scale. And that's, I think, where we've been fairly successful. Again, did we have to refactor? Did we incur some technical debt? You're not going to hear me say, no, we were perfect. Of course we did. Of course we had to go back and redo stuff. Uh, and it was painful. Um, that's for sure. But I think it's a, it's a having that mindset that, hey, don't, don't assume that this is always going to just have this level of capacity. So one of the things that, um, as, a, as an example, like when you think about a response time and you, you put in place, like I expect a certain response time to be less than 10 seconds or less than a sub-second response, depending on what the, what the particular thing is. You can say, look, given this quantity of, or this volume of requests that I'm going to get, this is fair. Our immediate question is, what happens if I double that? What happens if I 10x that? And if the answer is, I don't know how to get there, go back to the drawing board, figure it out. Because we're we don't, then it's not written. If you can convince me that this is a proof of concept that we will throw away and we're willing to invest in redoing it, fine. We will do that. We we will invest in, you know, sort of like pilot projects that do not scale, but then we cordon them off. We say, hey, that's not our platform. That's a proof of concept. So I think you have to have some discipline around that. And then you say, hey, those systems that we have, we've sold to our clients that that can scale, we have to answer these questions every time before we can do it. So load testing, performance testing, even beyond the capacity in which you expect, I think it's absolutely necessary. And then there's the willingness and the and the humility to just say, yeah, we didn't we didn't do it. So you roll up your sleeves and get that three o'clock AM call where you're like, oops, uh, you know, there's um there's smoke here and and doing what we can. I think the other part of architecturally decision right from the get-go, we're on on the cloud, we're in Amazon partner. We invested in that. We knew that that was going to give us much faster scale than if we had to build our own data center. Um, and I was involved in, in, in doing that in the prior. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like that's the smart thing to do when, when we have so much growth in front of us, that having an a infrastructure as well that can scale with us, having software that effectively is written to scale by virtue of making it as much service-oriented as possible so individual components can scale it based on their capacity needs. Uh, I think that's the other thing. And then testing that out as much as possible with as much rigor as we can, with as much sort of future planning as we can, um, is the other part of just, you know, getting to that three to 300. But what I will tell you, it was painful in the very beginning, because when you're strapped for cash and you're strapped for resources, we didn't have a ton of engineers, you're going to cut some corners. And we did. 
and you know we got lucky <laughs> i think that's that's fair to say we got lucky but we also had an amazing account management team um that was able to work with our clients and, and straight up tell them hey look you know we're working on that capacity and five years ago we had very tough conversations and i have none of those kinds of conversations now but you know as we look through those as we continue to scale um there are things that we're always now it's really about monitoring am i noticing things that you know before things would crash now things kind of do things in very uh different ways where where they there may be a creeping you know memory leak or something on a system that's not used very much now we're sort of like okay hey got to get at those so our ability to monitor and building the alerting systems our own dashboards um is where our investment is today to to just know when we have to add capacity before it it starts to fail and uh, so understanding those patterns uh earlier on is where we're shifting some of our infrastructure effort and so our engineering team is really looking at you know what are the what are the monitors that we we have you know it's we throw this word around what are the known knowns and known unknowns and unknown unknowns right so we're trying to reduce the unknown unknowns um by by increasing the known the known knowns you know it's just like a, a numbers game at this point um so yeah that's that's how i think we continue to to, to scale I like that i was talking a little bit with this company called gremlin about how they're approaching site reliability have you heard of them you know i haven't i no yeah, they're pretty pretty cool company. It it wasn't necessarily like exactly what you were describing, but the guy had been over at um, like Amazon on their site reliability, and they had this guy that would run through the server rooms and just rip out the cords and then see chaos engineering. Chaos engineering. Yeah. 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 And uh, they're like one of the cooler emerging players in the chaos engineering. But what got me is you know as an engineer the way that I had seen a couple of these, but the way that they described it where you actually like have the specific scenario and then you test against it and then it, it uh, like goes into your circle ci essentially like that type of mm -hmm. build deploy concept where it's always testing these different scenarios um and it was less i think it was like less about the technology and more about like the methodology of how they approached it yeah. they kind of like went hand in hand you know like a pivotal tracker or something uh yeah yeah but it was quite fascinating and so i was talking with a couple people about it and I brought it up to like uh, Jason over at GitHub and he's like, yeah, they're on our radar. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So like sometimes when my spidey senses start to tingle about something that's like really cool or interesting, I start checking it with other people and it's, it's uh No, I, I think we've, we've looked at chaos engineering and, and, and actually, you know, on the security side, um, we invest quite a bit and that's one of the things with healthcare as, as you can imagine. And I think every industry nowadays, I mean, we, we don't, we don't need to go Oh, well, this is healthcare. I don't think you'd want to know your your Facebook data to be out there any more than you'd want your healthcare data. You know, they're they're equally important to you. Um, but because it's a much more regulated environment, we have to sort of prove um, and, and go through these certifications and third party attestations and things like that. But one thing that was really interesting, which I went through an exercise, um, is what's called a tabletop exercise. And uh, what we do is you hire a you know an outside company that sits down with you and it's like this horror movie that gets played out in front of you I'm like okay you're getting um you get this email that's about a ransomware attack I'm like oh, okay how would you respond and so we had our ceo on there our you know 
director of compliance and, and our engineering, every, you know, we had all of the, the leaders in the organization and we had to kind of play out, like, what would we do, you know? And you, and you build that sort of sense like, oh, wow, we don't really have a good answer there. We, we need to get better about that. Um, just a simple thing like communication, like, hey, wait, do we tell our clients we're, you know, we got to do that. And who's doing that? Um, in some cases, it's very trivial pro process. In other cases, it was like, we need a system to help us, you know, pick that up faster or learn that. So what they do is they just inject new events into this three hour long process. And at the end of it, you're exhausted. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh God, <laughs> what did I just go through? Um, and and yet you learn a ton and the whole team just, just gets a, a huge amount of value. And, um, and so those are the kinds of things also, you know, just these, they are definitely theoretical, right? And we're not, we're not actually writing code or no one's doing a pen test on us or anything like that. But those kinds of analytical exercises are also hugely valuable. Like I said, it's about sometimes the methodology than necessarily the, the technology that you're employing. Um, the other thing, and I'm very proud of this um, compliment that I got from someone side. That's why I want to share it here. I'm a little brag. Um, but, but one of our clients, uh, their uh, chief information security officer said, hey, you know, Ram, the thing I like about what you guys are doing is like you've, you've incorporated security as a culture. Um, and I'm like, wow, that's a, that to me is the highest level company because you know, and when you talked about how do you scale, right? There's certain things, and I think culture is part of your architecture. And so when you think about capacity planning, when you think about how you want to scale, if that's not part of your culture and trying to do it after the fact, man, it's painful. It's rough. It, it, and I've been in environments where you, you just, you just literally say, I'm just going to rip this out. Right? There's no other way because it's your retrofitting culture or your retrofitting something that is, isn't fundamentally there. And so security, scale, growth, if that's not part of your culture, if that's not sort of inherently how you think about problems, you know, methodologies will flow. You, you think less about those problems you, or you always get your reflexive nature is to reject the, the findings that, you know, you're looking for confirmation bias. I will be able to, you know, I don't have a capacity problem because I'll only use the solution for this much. If you think in those terms, that's a reflection of, I think, potentially a culture that's not built around scale, around security, around growth. And so that's, you know, it's getting to what you're talking about, you know, the, the Gremlin CTO seems to be like, they're trying to get companies to think about it with chaos engineering as a great idea. Like, you know, hey, pardon the term, but shit's gonna happen. Right. It's just, it, it is. And if you think that it's not going to happen and you somehow can write amazing code that you're not thinking about it, right? You, you're not, you're not fundamentally that culture of humility is missing and you're going to have to pay that price. Yeah. And you have low experience because it's like, yes. Or yeah. That, things yes, break since day around. one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. So uh, man, we did it, my friend. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, we did. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. This is fun. Uh, this is really nice. Thank you. Was there anything that that we didn't get out there that you want to get out? 
Uh, you have another 10 hours, <laughs> but no, I, I, no, I think, I think really enjoy this. I mean, this is obviously something that we live and breathe and to be able to talk to someone out there. Um, the, the, the one thing that I always do is if, if, if there are other CTOs that, that, uh, you know, listen to this or hear this, I'm sure they are. Cause you, you obviously have a great podcast and, and, uh, you know, appreciate you having me on, but I'm always looking to learn. I always look to, to learn from my peers. And so, Hey, reach out to me and, you know, get in touch with me and, and tell me what I'm doing wrong or thinking about things differently that, that I should. And, and we as a company, I'll say our biggest asset is our willingness to learn. And um, I think, you know, that that's, that's how I approach my job is like, hey, what do I not know? All right. So keep looking. Um, so that's my final ask, if you will, is, is for those that are listening, hey, come talk to me and tell me what I should do differently or do better. Excellent. Yeah. We'll put your information in the show notes. It was a fantastic conversation. I look forward to talking with you in the future, Ram. Yeah. Thanks you so much. Thanks to everyone on your team as well for, for making it happen. Thanks. Have a great day, buddy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.